We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back from Nashville, Tennessee, for the fourth interview of the day. I am running around slightly less than my guest here, but it's still a long day. But I am very excited to have as a guest seven-time U.S. champion, grandmaster, and I'm sure lots of other titles that I can't remember, Irina Crush. Irina, thank you for joining us here on Perpetual Chess. Thank you, Ben, for having me. So which titles am I forgetting, Irina? Wow. Um, I don't think anything that major. <laughs> I think you've listed the major ones that I'm uh, happy to have. I mean, I don't know. I won the the Pan American Girls Championship, I think, when I was little. But, right. You know, yeah. And speaking of when you were little, so Irina and I go back a long way, not so much on a personal level, but I'm about six years older than Irina. And I used to play chess, even though I grew up in Philly, I used to play in New York a fair amount. And Irina, of course, uh, made her uh, ascent in New York. So we would frequently see her at the Marshall Chess Club. And then as we got a little bit older, I would start to unfortunately get paired with Irina with, with uh, predictable results. But 
one one question I had for Irina right off the bat is my mom and I had a running joke because when when she would be paired, she always had an exclamation point next to her name. So three of them, right? I, was it three? My recollection is one. But in any event, whenever my mom and I would talk about her in conversation, like who did you play? We would always say Irina because we didn't know why the exclamation point was there. So I've always wanted to ask you, what is the origins of that exclamation point? Um, well, I, I mean, when I was little and I was playing these tournaments, the Marshall Manhattan Chess Clubs, they were run by Steve Emmett, who's actually, um, you know, well-known tournament directors running um, the event here as well as one of the directors. And um, he just had the idea to write my name in the pairing sheet with all capital letters and, uh, you know, several exclams afterwards. Um, I think because he thought my last name was uh, suitable for that, you know, crush, crush. He wanted, you know, to make it clear to my opponents, you know, what was coming. Um, And it's actually, you know, it's it's a funny story, but it's one of the things that I um, think of when people ask me, well, how was it for you as a little girl growing up? Like, I mean, did you experience, you know, anything like negative, um, you know, being a girl in sort of a guy's world? And so I remember that from my childhood, you know, something completely, you know, that I, um, unasked, you know, that like an adult, uh, an adult man uh, did. And I found it to be, uh, you know, supportive and funny because I'm sure it was meant to be, you know, supportive. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely wouldn't consider that negative. Although I do have to think like, it's unlikely that would happen to a young, talented boy. It doesn't. Well, I think it has something to do with the exact nature of my last name. Right. If their last name was Crush, I think they might. Uh, he might have done it for a boy as well. Yeah, although your first name had the exclamation point too, as I recall. No, no, no. It was really the last name. Was it? I think so. Okay, yeah. we might have to get I, Steve Emmett yeah, on the record get, on this one. Yeah, we got to get Steve Emmett you know, to yeah. come here and verify this okay. because he would know better than anyone. And when did it get dropped? Well, when, when Steve Emmett just wasn't running the tournaments that I was playing in. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, so flashing forward, now that we have that out of the way, I want to jump the whole way forward to the U.S. championships that we're Mm -hmm. just coming off of. So I know that you do a lot of media at the U.S. championships, so you've uh, been asked to dissect this tournament a fair amount. But nonetheless, our listeners may not have caught all the coverage. Um, So what was uh, what was your take? How was the and we know that unfortunately you didn't win, but how was the tournament for you? Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, overall, it's kind of disappointing when when you don't win and also when you actually are pretty much not even in the running to win. I think that was the worst part, you know, like after round eight, you know, when I lost that critical game to Annie Wang, um, you know, my chances of winning were like pretty much zero, you know, because that game opened up a two and a half point lead uh, for her over me. And with only three rounds left to play, like it was virtually insurmountable. And, you know, at the time when I played her, it had been a one and a half point gap, which was, you know, quite large. And obviously I came into that game, you know, understanding that, you know, I needed to win. And But the funny thing is even the way it turned out, like at some point, if I, even if I would have made a draw, you know, even just kept that one and a half point gap, it was still something that you could have closed in in the three games. But um, yeah, I mean, the whole tournament hinged on basically that one game because I think, um, you know, maybe it hadn't been completely smooth. The, of course, the whole way I'd already lost one game. But if I would have just kind of finished that game the way um, I could have finished it, you know, since I had a winning position, um, you know, with only half a point, you know, to, to make up for in three rounds, I think it was very doable. Okay. but So what, what went wrong before that? To- well, I'd lost one game as black um, against Anna Sharevich. I'd also like um, like drawn a game in the first round against Akshita Gorty that I was uh, 
winning in. Um, yeah, the game with Sharevich, I mean, it wasn't a great game. I messed up in the opening. It was really on the back foot right from the beginning. Um, got back into the game, and it was it was pretty even. And I even you know, I felt completely comfortable. But then somehow in time pressure, it was a bit tricky, and I didn't. Um, I didn't handle it so well. She got a strong attack. I mean, that game was, you know, unpleasant, but I felt like, you know, you can have a game like that once in a while. Like it wasn't, um, it wasn't that devastating to me. And I just like, I knew I would get my chances. I had games coming up against like Nazi and Anna Zatonsky um, that I, um, that were very important. So, um, you know, after, you know, I beat Anna in round, I guess it was like six right before the free day. Uh, I felt very optimistic about my chances in the tournament because it was a good game with the black pieces went uh, quite, you know, quite easily, you know, for a game against someone um, as strong as Anna. And, um, and by the time I played Annie, I mean, you know, I was feeling very, you know, I was feeling good and um, the game was perfect. I mean, you know, it was black, you know, first 40 moves, you know, you build up your position and prove it. And, um, and eventually just became winning, you know, and I knew my position was winning and I simply kind of, um, I think I was, not, I mean, I wasn't necessarily overconfident in the position because I knew it was winning and that right. was what it was. But I certainly, um, you know, like the, the, the move that I saw, I thought it was winning and I didn't even recheck it. You know, like when I got closer to it, I, I just played what I'd planned, didn't even do a recheck, even though I was like sacrificing an exchange. Um, and it turned out there was a very simple hole there and, um, and it wasn't winning. And the position had been so good that I could even give up the exchange. I was still better. But, you know, it's like a huge change from like where you think you have a forced win to where you, you suddenly don't. And then you're burning up time in the second time control. Um, and within a few moves, like, you know, I had taken that position and just like let it slide downhill. And it's like then I played bad move after bad move with little time. Um, I just like never readjusted. You know, what? it's like big change. Mm-hmm. And I never even for a second thought, hey, put the brakes on, just make a draw. Like I could have, I saw these lines. I was like, no, there was, it wasn't even anything that I considered. And, and finally, by the time I realized like things were bad, it was lost. Right. You know, so it was like many mistakes on my part, just like psychological mistakes, mistakes like carelessness or like overconfidence about my position. And, um, and yeah, it it cost me a lot. Yeah. So that calls to mind, there's this theory that Jonathan Rosen has written about in Seven Deadly Chessons. Um, and I, I know Yoon uh, Ludwig Hammer, when he came on Perpetual Chess, he highlighted the idea of trends in a chess game where somehow there's a narrative where you're, one thing is happening and then suddenly another thing is happening. But really, you're just making a sequence of moves. So it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So what's been your experience? Like, is it a real thing? Is it something that you constantly, that has been a theme in your games? Or was this kind of a one-off thing that just went awry? Yeah, you know, I I wouldn't think, I don't think that what happened to me was that unusual. I think it's very common for chess players. Um, you know, that's what happens like when you overpress, right? right? That's basically, in a sense, that's what it, what it is like where you just don't put the brakes on it at some point, like even like Caruana against Viadazoria, you know, lost a game in this tournament that, you know, I mean, he lost, you know, no one beat him really. It was like, he lost. He just never stopped, you know, when, when objectively he should have stopped. Right. And I certainly had my chances in that game. Okay, fine. I made a mistake. I'm not winning. Um, you know, here I see some safe lines. Let's just end this game, you know? 
Um, but yeah, I don't. I wouldn't say it's a typical mistake for me. I think it's a typical, fairly typical chess player mistake. Okay. You know, and it just happened that it came to me at like a very uh, in a very critical game. Mm-hmm. And when something like that happens to you, with you know, you've had a many many years playing in the U.S. Championship at this point. You won your first one when you were 14. So does it get any easier to deal with? I dealt with it, you know, very badly. I mean, <laughs> it was just devastating to me because the problem is it's like, it's one thing when you make mistakes that are fixable, mm. you know, like, like let's say the game against Sharevich, like I knew it was still a long tournament, tons of games to go, you can make up for it. But it's just like, realistically, you know that your chances to win are just over. Like, they, you, you know, you, you can't engage in like magical thinking there. I mean, there's two and a half points uh, gap and three three rounds to go, you know. Um so, I mean, the best I could really do after that point was to try to get third place, you know, mm-hmm. because at that point I was like, I think in a tie for like third to fifth or something. And I could only, you know, try to get third and, you know, maybe second if everything, you know, went uh, very lucky for me. I even had chances for second, but, you know, just um, cars fell in a different way. Yeah. Well, I mean, seven U.S. championships is still pretty good. I mean, I'm sure you, you wanted that eighth, but... Uh... Yeah, wanting is not enough. Yeah. You know, you got to actually, you got to prepare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and we were emailing a little bit um, before this interview, and you mentioned that you, you're quite busy teaching chess. So do you feel like that's making it more challenging uh, to oh, definitely. prepare? Yeah, I mean, yeah, my life has definitely undergone like a big transition in the last like three years. I mean, it's actually been about, yeah, like three years since we started um, our company, GM Chess, with uh my uh, my friends, grandmasters, uh, Georgie Kachishvili and Tamaz Gelishvili. And, um, you know, all of us do a lot of teaching and we organize these uh, um, camps for kids at the Marshall Chess Club. And um, like, for example, in the summer, we have like eight weeks of camps, you know, mm-hmm. that um, like I'll be teaching in and organizing. Yeah. So you can imagine it's like your days are really uh, filled, you know, from like getting up at like 630 to, you know, coming back kind of late at night and then doing that, you know, for the whole summer. And it does definitely um, cut into my ability to to study and to play, you know, like before I would try to play an international tournament every month and a half, you know, go to Europe. And those kinds of things are like um, just something I can't put into my schedule now because it would mean like leaving my uh, commitments in New York for too long. So, yeah, I mean, over that time, I've definitely seen, you know, the level of my play, you know, decline. Although, you know, sometimes I sometimes you get some surprises. Like last year, I played a tournament in, at the Marshall, the New York International, and um, I wound up tying for first. And actually, one of my better results in my whole chess playing, you know, history, you know, because I beat like 226, I don't know, 40 GMs in the last day um, to tie for first with one of them, um, Axel Bachmann from I think Paraguay and so that was a big surprise to me you know because you think about it I I think just like a month or two before that I was like third in the U.S. Women's Championship Mm -hmm. and then I like tie for first in the much stronger tournament with a number of GMs playing Um, and I hadn't done anything different you know it's not like I'd prepared for this tournament it was just like on a good day you know I can play like that but you know um, there's much less consistency. Okay and was it a tough decision for you to open your business um, because of that? Did- yeah, it definitely was. I mean, it's been something like, um, I guess I was, I can't say I was like so enthusiastic in the <laughs> beginning. Yeah, because I knew it was going to pull me away from chess. I wasn't going to be able to devote as much time to studying. Um, and so, yeah, I think I was a bit reluctant to do it. Um, but 
now I'm very happy. Oh, you know? good. Yeah. Glad yeah. to hear it. Definitely happy. And you're, you, you've been over the years someone who plays a lot of chess. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if you look at the, the field of your common competitors in the U.S. Women's Championship, but also just across the landscape at other grandmasters, I, I feel like if I would look over the tables of who was playing, I was more likely to see your name than almost anyone. So it was, I'm sure it was a big transition for you. Yeah, I mean, I definitely made it a point throughout my, you know, my teen years and my 20s to try to go to all the best tournaments in the world, you know, and I, you know, I tried to play in all of them. I played like Aeroflot Open at some points, Capella Grand and Gibraltar many times, Reykjavik Open. Uh, these are just like some of the ones that come to mind. And, um, you know, because I was trying to seek out the best competition, trying to become a better player. And uh, my transition happened like kind of shortly after, you know, I made my GM title. Um, played in the Baku Open. That was actually also another um, strong tournament that I found. And that was where I made my third norm in 2013. And about like, you know, a little more than a year after that, you know, we opened up the company. Okay. And it was probably a decent time, you know, after I made one of my uh, major goals. Yeah. So, so even with all the championships and all the accomplishments you had, you felt like you, you wanted to push for the Grandmaster title? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it'd been, it's like... It's just something, um, you know, I don't know if I even like pushed for it. Right. You see, that's well, the thing. Well, you have to keep showing up. <laughs> yeah, you, you show up. But the thing is like, I think if I would have, I don't know, pushed for it, I probably could have done it earlier. I mean, I did it at a very late age. Right. You know, when I think about it, just like very few people make GM at 29, you know, and the reason is that like you either do it earlier or you just don't do it. Yeah. You know, it's very late these days. I mean, like much more common is like 17. Than, right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's actually a normal age for a different generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like before, you know, 30, 40 years ago, that would be you know, yeah. fine. But but these days, you know, um, it was certainly late. And so I, I can't say that, that they made a push for it. It's just that like I was just play, I just played chess my whole life. You right. Know? And I just tried to I just tried to become better. I did. I did make an effort to seek out those. Um, you know, good players to learn from the from the games, and I got a chance to play a lot of good GMs in my in my life, and um, and I think that's what ultimately helped me uh, make the title. Um, playing them and analyzing with them. Yeah. And what's been your experience working with coaches? You you uh, we had uh, Alex Lenderman also join me, and I know that he gave a lot of credit to to Kachishvili with helping his chest. And yeah. do you work with him as well? Yeah, uh, Georgie, you know, was someone that I first met back in 98. Um, he came to the U.S. for the first time, and my dad uh, found him for me as a teacher. Um, like, I was like 15 back then, and I was around IM level. And um, so we worked together for a time. He was my first grandmaster teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and we worked uh, together for a time before he left to Georgia, and um, he couldn't come back, you know, because like a visa issues and... Um, and then we resumed working like a decade later. So oh, it's wow. kind of funny. Yeah, totally. There like 10 years went by. It's a totally different period of life. But when he came back to the U.S. in 2008 and around 2009, we started working together again. And I won also the Sanford Fellowship around that time. That helped, you know, with the lessons. And I can say that definitely my, um, you know, I think the fact that I made Grandmaster um, after working with him, I mean, it's not a coincidence. Yeah, he helped me. First of all, in the preparations during the tournaments, in the ones that I made my GM norms in that year, 2013. So his preparation was definitely like uh, very um, valuable. But he also just in in between tournaments, just like the the lessons. Um, you know, I got to sort of absorb his views on chess. You know, I'm I'm pretty sure that 
that helped me a lot. And was he, he wasn't there with you in Baku, was he? He wasn't. No, but he did. He wasn't there with me in Baku, and he wasn't there with me in the women's world team championship in Astana. But you know, he was he was with me online. <laughs> we do Skype calls or what? Yeah, and yeah. he would just dig in on the dig database. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And did you have chess base with you as well? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, you got chess base, and you get like you know just chess base files or games that he would send. And, you know, over the years, I have to say one of the, you know, the benefits of working with someone, same person is that they just get to know you well, mm -hmm. you know, and they get to know what you can play, how far you can branch out to try something new, what you're comfortable with and not. And I think over the years, you know, that process became smoother and smoother. Okay. And, you know, even this tournament, um, like the, the recent U.S. Women's Championship, like um, he helped me there. And I can say that like all of his help in the openings uh It was it was spot on. You're not going to you know, blame him for you're no, not winning no, it. No, I only blame myself. Okay. The help that I got was very good, and he really helped me. Also, I mean, because after that uh, that tragic game with Annie, mm -hmm. um, when I was really down, um, you know, after that, I actually came back with two wins, and those two wins were like what helped me, um, you know, get a clear third place. And and um, his he gave me a lot of psychological like support, you know, mm -hmm. after I lost that game. And so what, what sort of thing would he tell you? Let's, let's hear the pep talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, it's kind of funny. Well, the thing is being nice to me doesn't really work. Okay. I, uh, you know, it's like, you gotta, um, first he tolerated me and tolerated my be my depression uh -huh. and everything. And finally, you know, I respond at some point to the point, like, you know, um, Where it's like, hmm, how do we even explain it? Um, it's like, he'll say something like, okay, well, let's go back home and cry. Let's just drop yeah. out of the tournament. <laughs> you know, sarcastic, finally, yeah. where, where I have to be like, okay, I got to wake up. Right. You know? So if I feel like he's just being nice and comforting, well, that was good. But it's like, it just couldn't help me. It wasn't right. that I, it just couldn't, yeah. you know, it's not that I didn't want it to, but it's just like, I was just so low that, 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 that that's words of support. It still wasn't enough for me. And so you got to go to something in me that is like something in me that just doesn't want to break. Like even like how, like that I'm very low. But it's like, no, I don't want to go home. No, right. no, no. I'm going to, I'm going to stay and kind of try to pull this out, you know. And so he kind of tapped into that finally. And I, but I had to feel his frustration at me, mm -hmm. you know, in order to get that, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. Well, it's all part of the process. I mean, that's how you become a grandmaster. If you, if you just let it roll off your back, you probably wouldn't, wouldn't have achieved all that you've achieved in chess. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, I feel that that's definitely... One of the things that chess has been great at teaching me is like these situations has given me just so many of them. Right. And it's know? funny because it's like no matter where you go, there you are. Like, you know, you're kind of at the pinnacle of, of U.S. chess and you're dealing with the same thing that everyone who plays chess has to deal with. Like these just moments of sheer frustration from yeah. um, things just not going quite the way you envision them. <laughs> Yeah, it's very hard, you know, because if you really ask, like, well, how did you get out of it? You know, I mean, afterwards, you're like, you won a couple of games, but I almost can say, like, well, I don't, I don't even know what I did. Yeah. You know, I just kind of got up and, you know, I even said, I told them in the interview that, like, the, even in the morning, I had, like, I woke up early at 6.30, which, like, I never do, and like, with, like, some kind of a immediately remembering this game and, like, oh, how man. it made me feel. So that's, like, how, how hard it was for me, right? So I can't even say it's not, like... I truly like, you know, recovered, but just probably something in my, in my mind changed enough that at least I was like willing to go out there and fight, you okay. know? Okay, nice. Yeah. 
And what's so what's next with I mean, so you're busy with work. You mentioned the summer camps. So you've got those coming up. So I do I infer that there's no tournaments on the immediate horizon? Yeah, definitely nothing in the summer. Like once from July 16 to like the end of August, like I realized that it's futile mm-hmm. to play. I mean, unless you just want to show up and like blunder. Yeah, if you're all sandbagging, your pieces. you can play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, actually I am going to play. I'm planning to play the New York International again. I really like to play at the Marshall Chess Club, you know, where I grew up and where I still do a lot of teaching. Um, and I think I'll probably play the World Open. And then once the summer, you know, camp start, I'll take a break and then I'll have some time a little bit, you know, to prepare for the Olympiad. And I'll be playing uh, for the U.S. Um, in, in Georgia in September. Oh, yeah. I'm excited. I'm a, I'm a big Olympiad fan, so I'm excited for It's a for great that. festival of chess. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, it's one of those tournaments that you don't want to miss. Yeah. And have you have you been to Georgia? Yeah, many, many times now. Yeah. Well, many, maybe two, three, something like okay. that. Yeah. Yeah, I I've, I've want to go there, but... Probably it's not very happen. nice. Yeah, a very nice place. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I, I was, I'm sure it'll be mostly business, business when you're there. But on this trip, yeah. I mean, I've done sightseeing before, um, but on this trip, it's like I'll kind of come, come in, play the tournament, and then go back. Okay. Um, and is the team set for the U.S. Women's Olympiad? Um, not quite yet. I mean, I think it's going to be, uh, you know. Anna Zatonsky and Tateva Brahamyan and me and Jennifer Yu. And unfortunately, you know, we just found out that Nazi Paikidze um, decided to decline. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. So that's she's, a She's loss. really serious about her secret business, huh? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what she's up to, but she just said it's for personal reasons. And, okay. um, you know, no one is asking why. But um, but it's it's certain, certainly a, a loss for the team. Yeah. I she's, mean, and so you guys will still be one of the higher seeds, but that that hurts, right? Yeah, she's a she's definitely a good a good team player. Mm-hmm. You know, she's an aggressive player, aggressive style, so she can bring in those wins. Yeah, in good form. Um, so yeah, I feel like it's too bad, but I think uh, her replacements might be um, the last year's uh, women's champion, Sabina Faisal. Okay, yeah. So Sabina's strong yeah. in her own right. So yeah, yeah. Okay. And what about like previous Olympiads? I mm-hmm. always feel like there's just, I mean, it's this unique unique case where there's a, there's generally one or two exceptions like Peter Lacoe didn't go to the last one but uh broadly like 98% of the world's best players are there at this one event you know so i just feel like i mean there's you know there's the history dating back to people like Judith Polgar making her debut um you know norms get made Vladimir you know. Kramnik 19 oh, which Olympiad 92 Olympiad Manila yeah making his breakthrough yeah mm-hmm. so so what's uh what are your like most cherished memories, either over the board or away from the board at the Olympiads? Wow. Well, I definitely do remember my first Olympiad. That was 1998, and that was a big year in chess for me. You know, so when I won my um my first women's title, and I qualified to the Olympiad team, and I like I got the bronze medal in the World Girls Under 20 Championship. So. Um, and towards the end of the year, yeah, I played for the U.S. team along with like Alina Akhmelovskaya, you know, who passed away a few years ago, um, and Angelina Belikovskaya, who's on the U.S. CF board these days, um, and Esther Epstein. Like this is the old generation. Yeah, I remember the. You I see, I mean, these, these, yeah. yeah, these ladies were like the, the best ladies in U.S. chess at the time, and I was like the young newcomer, right? You know, and I, they put me on board too, and it was actually quite a good Olympiad for me. I traveled by myself. Wow. I think probably and you were, with, you were 14, right? Yeah, I was 14. Like, I mean, not with my parents. I think I went with uh, John Fedorovich. Okay. I must have went with him because uh-huh. he was the he was the captain of the team, and he um 
is my fellow New Yorker. Right. So I must have traveled with him there to Elista. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's quite funny. far. I mean, John's a great guy, super nice, but he doesn't strike me as like the, you know, the the perfect uh like uh tour guide, you know. Yeah. Like- yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I I didn't re- I didn't really need like a chaperone, you know. Right. I was pretty. I mean, I'd traveled by myself abroad for the first time when I was not yet thirteen. Actually, uh, my dad just sent me to the World Youth Rapid Championship in Paris in Disney World, uh, Disneyland Paris. Um, and I traveled by myself completely. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, by the time I was fourteen, I was like a seasoned traveler. Unbelievable. <laughs> so you know, I just needed John around, but yeah. not. You know. So I, did you manage to stay out of trouble? You don't seem like one of those like child actors who like went off the rails. Yeah. No, I didn't. No, I was pretty, um, you know, pretty decent kid like that. Okay. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, At least with enough maturity to get myself home. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Um, okay. So let's see. Uh, we always have to talk about chess learning, Irina. Um, everyone wants to know how they can become U.S. champions so, or in whatever country they are listening from. So uh, we have a question from, first, we'll, we'll get to nuts and bolts in a minute of uh, how you attained your level. But I have a question from a supporter of the podcast who asks, um, uh, this is from, I believe it is Lucio Silva, but I can't find it. Uh, apologies if it's wrong, Lucio. Um, is blindfold training important to achieve GM level? Is it possible to achieve this level without such specific form of training? Wow. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, kind of unexpected. Well, I did no blindfold training in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, for example, like when I've been reading the books um, by Judith Polgar, you know, that they did a lot of that. Yeah. And... Um, I think, you know, probably people have different experiences with that, but it just like was not something that, um, that I ever did. You know, so the answer is yes. You can I would say you can become yeah. a GM, and it's interesting because, of course, you've got abilities to see the board blindfold. Probably not as much as someone who's had, you know, of course, specific training in that. But I can tell you, my I do get. Ex- I've been getting experience in blindfold games for the last like decade. Every year, um, I've been doing this event in Cincinnati, this Scholastic tournament with um, GMs. Uh, Greg Kaidanov and Maurice Ashley. And so they, they've asked us to play a blindfold blitz game with Greg, you wow. know, where Maurice commentates. And I remember the first time I did, it must've been like 2007. Like at first of all, I was really nervous. You know, you're playing in front of a huge crowd, they blindfold you and it's like, and it's bliss, like five minutes and you're yeah. playing against a very strong player, right? And I had like no training in this at all. So I would like prepare for those games with Greg, like actually looking up in the database. It was all useless because he would play other things. Right. Um, and, you know, I would lose to him most, most, most like every year. You know, you know, sometimes I would lose on time because he definitely played faster than me, sometimes by position. And um, but, you know, as the, as the years went on, first of all, I got a lot more comfortable with it. You know, for sure. It was like practice. And um, and I stopped being nervous. I stopped preparing. I just go in and play. And this year, I even won. Oh, yeah. awesome. So training, nice. training does pay off. It's been te- it took me 10 years. <laughs> yeah, great. well, I mean, I can't even imagine. I can stumble my way through a blindfold game, but blindfold blitz, that's uh, that's a bridge too far for me. Yeah, well, you know what's also interesting is that I, I did do an event um, like last year somewhere where I got to, they asked me also to play blindfold um, fast game against one of the local masters. And, and, you know, because I'd played this against Greg, you know, I was feeling pretty comfortable, but I was surprised that it was actually easy. 
You see that? So it's like there was a big difference between playing like a GM mm -hmm. blindfold and playing a master. What was the know? master blindfold? Or Yeah, he was oh, also okay. blindfold. Okay. But it definitely, you know, I felt like the practice that I've been getting with Gregory right. made it seem like, like an easier game. Right. You know, because I started out with someone very tough, you know? Yeah. 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 So, of course, you know, training will make you better for sure. But I, I don't think you need to train in it specifically to become a GM. Okay. So, so what do you need to do? What do you need to do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, at different stages of your development, you need to do different things. You know, that's the thing. It's one thing, you know, if you're you're asking, what should an IM do to become a GM? And another thing, if you're asking, well, what should a young, talented, you know, 1600 do yeah. to become a GM, right? So there's, it's like, um, that, those are two totally different things. Well, let's start. I mean, I think most of our listeners are adults. So, and some of them may be knocking on the door as GM, probably not most of them. Uh, but let's start with the talented kid because uh, that's, I think, the most common path, as we were saying uh, earlier. So what should they do? What should they do? Well, I mean, the first thing is to make sure you're um, you're born with very supportive parents. Yes. You know, born yeah. into a family that's going to support chess and is going to... Um, be happy to take you to tournaments and sit around doing nothing yeah. while you play. I'm um, gonna, you know, and who's go and who are gonna be willing to do that? Like, you know, pretty much every weekend, you know, parents who are gonna, you know, be willing to get you the coach and invest in those lessons. Um, and you know, yeah, look for look look for those good tournaments for you. Um, help you know help you in your study routine as well. You know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's important that parents are like kind of holding their children accountable. Did you do your tactics? Did you do your chess homework? You know, was that the case for you? Um, yeah, it was the case for me. Certainly my dad, um, you know, made sure that I was solving my tactics, you know, from the encyclopedia informant, wow. you know. Um, so did you have a coach giving you homework or like where was the, the direction coming from? You know, I would say for the most part, when I was young, most of my training was definitely tactics, mm -hmm. you know, until you get to a certain level. Then there was a time when I got like a bit older, you know, like 12 years old, 13, and I saw the benefit of studying on my own. And like, I remember my coach would give me these printouts from like, um, you know, chess encyclopedia of openings. I would just put them in a folder, never open them. Mm -hmm. You know, that was for years, you know, right. then I got a bit older and I started studying and I would open these things and learn some lines in the Sicilian. And that was getting closer to like, you know, 23, 2400 level. And then I saw how it helped me win games, how it going against these guys who were like 2400, who had been like very tough for me earlier. And, um, and this knowledge that I had just acquired was helping me do well. And that, um, when I saw just like the benefits of work, you know, I started to do um, more of it on my own and, um, you know, started studying everything more on my own, the openings, studying the classics. I had a lot of games collections, solving puzzles and game books. I mean, I did, um, you know, quite a bit of independent study. So do you have a favorite book from that time? <laughs> Favorite book from that time? You know, I mean, I, I went through Botvinnik's games. Okay. And in terms of games collections, maybe, you know, I feel like uh, learned a lot from him, actually. Would you say he's your favorite player? You know, I don't know if he's my favorite player, but I feel like his, um, certainly, he's a great strategic player, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, he's a sort of a model, model for me. I mean, in terms of like, um, you know, I'm certainly, I'm not tall. Like, right. <laughs> you know, even though I really enjoy Tal's games collections, but it's just like has not very little to do with how I can play. Right. So if I if I could say like who I learned the most from, I would say probably like someone like Botvinnik. Okay. Yeah. And now that you're doing a lot of teaching, what sort of material do you present to, to your students? Yeah, again, um, it's uh, 
you know, at the level that I'm teaching at, you know, I, I make sure that they're doing a lot of tactics, mm -hmm. you know, on their own. And when I give them homework, I mean, I like to give them problems on, you know, that involve, let's say, prophylactic thinking. Oh. That's big, mm -hmm. you know, Dvoretsky type of stuff, but not yeah. not Dvoretsky level, right. but that question, you know, that, you know, um, was very important in uh, Dvoretsky's like teaching manuals, right? Um, so just to get them used to from a very, you know, early period, no matter their level to get used to the question of like, what does my opponent want? Mm -hmm. You know, I think the earlier you start, the more you repeat that, the more, you know, ingrained it becomes, because I think that's one, you know, it's a good quality to have. It's like everyone can sort of defend against obvious threats, right? But like the good players are defending against, let's say, Threats that are, first of all, not obvious at all. They're not even like, they're not like threats. They're just ideas. Right. Ideas of the opponent that maybe the opponent doesn't even see yet. Right. But but the only way to do that is if you're really like trained. It's like ingrained in you to always think about what the opponent wants. So I think, you know, I, I try to give that to my students, Um, you know, no matter what level they're yeah, at. Yeah. And that's a nice counterbalance to doing tactics because yeah. you're just so used to looking at forcing moves if you're doing a lot of tactics that it, you know, it's kind of like a different uh, muscle in the brain. Yep. Uh, so where do you get the material for the, like, like for more prophylactic thinking, yeah. you know, every time, like I look at, at like games, you know, I just like download something from Twick, you know, the week in chess or any recent games, I'll, I'll, I'll put them away, squirrel them away nice. for my yeah, students. File, and that's yeah. where I created because there's actually a dearth of such material. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like you're going to see a lot of like great books on prophylaxis for, you know, players rated 1500, 1700 that are going to be appropriate for them. I mean, Dvoretsky books are, would just not be, it's just too difficult. Most of his material is for like at least masters and above. Um, so it's basically like, uh, you yeah you got to find it on your own. Sounds like you need to write a book, Irina. It's it would be an interesting topic. I think it's very, you know very valuable and that and for players at that level like they just don't have um, enough material on that. Um, so when's it coming out? <laughs> you know what? Like with all your free time. Yeah, with all my free time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it it is something that I'd be interested in doing for sure. Cool. Nice. Yeah. And by the way, listeners. Yeah. So here we are in uh, in Tennessee, and Irina's just doing event after event. So. Um, I, I think she's doing amazing in this interview, but just so people know, she's been running around like, like a mad woman doing blitz, play all comers, simuls, lectures, you name it, she's yeah. done it and coaching on coaching. top of that. So thank you to Irina for, uh, for, for this time on a long day. Well, talking about chess makes me happy. Good. No. <laughs> good. Yeah, I should hope so. And speaking of which, another topic that we had highlighted to talk about is, uh, why you decided to, to stay in chess. So, um, uh, over the years, some of the people that that were rivals with you have uh, have pursued different um, different careers, and you did go to college. You went to NYU, and you know certainly, I'm sure have have had options to do other things. So, what made you decide to to stick with this great game? You know, I think it was a product of like my own inclinations and also like my life circumstances. You know, um, you know, of course. You know, sometimes people have to make decisions. They're like forced decisions, right? Like if they got no way to provide for themselves and chess is not exactly like a high paying activity, um, you know, they might just have to go and um, seek something outside of the chess world. For me, I was pretty lucky. I mean, uh, until I finished college, I lived with my parents. Um, and afterwards, you know, 
uh, Pascal, you know, who you interviewed on your show. I mean, he was, um, you know, he got a job. Right. <laughs> he got a job. So he uh, was supportive of me playing, you know, mm -hmm. and took care of all like the rent and all those things for a few years. And that gave me time. And then I had the Sanford. Right. You see that? So yeah. it's like, so those were the outside factors that kind of just like let me kind of coast along in my 20s yeah um without really having to worry about the money some pride question. money from u.s mm -hmm. championships here and yeah there. i mean th those were nice and i did a very minimal amount of teaching during that time just to kind of uh, support myself mm -hmm. um but like limiting it to you know a few hours a week and like maybe a camp here or there but nothing that would um take my time away full like uh full time um but so that's like the outside things that they were certainly there you know mm -hmm. like I, I had like support to continue in chess and, um, but in terms of my personal inclinations, yeah, I, I always felt like a chess player, mm -hmm. you know, I just, I mean, I did go to NYU, I tried to be a good student there. Um, but after I finished it, like, it didn't occur to me to actually do anything <laughs> with that degree. It was right. like, chess was my world, you know, yeah. and I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed like, you know, going to those tournaments and studying and trying to get better. And, and then finally, I was kind of lucky that, you know, I actually found myself in a position where like, I could support myself quite well. I mean, I had to sort of branch out, you know, and go into like teaching and, you know, running my, the, running the company. Um, and I've done like everything in chess, like commentary and right. writing and all, all those things I enjoy, you know? Yeah. So, um, it's kind of lucky that chess gave me those opportunities and, um, I get to, I get to still continue, um, you know, doing what I love to do. <laughs> yeah. And it's evident as, as I mentioned earlier, by the fact that you, you keep playing. I mean, it's not, you're not just involved in the presentation and writing, but you're still out there competing, which is, uh, it's good to see. Yeah. And when I compete and I, you know, I have a tournament like the U S championship, um, you know, it makes me like, as soon as I finish, I'm like, you know, the very next day that I flew back from New York, I woke up early that morning and I was solving some, puzzle in this uh this book it was a great puzzle like uh from one of krasenkov's games you know on calculation you know it's like just motivated to work in my weakness Good, yeah yeah nice <laughs> um so was it is it a book that you're reading or yeah it's actually the, the puzzle came up in a book by sharashevsky okay the he, new one yeah the new one about like the you know i mean he's writing from the point of view of a teacher and there's a chapter in cal calculation of variations and he cites this example that Krasenkov had given. And it's a fantastic example that like I spent like an hour looking at and just couldn't solve. But you stuck with it. Stuck with it. Yeah, because that's been a theme from yeah. stronger players like yourself who've come on the, the, the show. Like I always want to give up if I'm doing a puzzle and, I, you, you know, I have kids, I work. So it's not I'm generally not just sitting in a room without distraction for an hour straight. But I use that as a crutch. To, to give up on a puzzle way sooner than than I can but some or than I should but something about players of your level you guys have it ingrained that you just you can't give up yeah I mean I think it's fine definitely to look up a solution um, as long as you feel like you've basically done everything you could with this puzzle mm -hmm. you know I mean it can happen that there's just like something some places your brain just won't go you just don't see something but as long as I like I followed this method I wrote down all my candidate moves mm -hmm. tried to, I wrote down you know I, I had the whole tree of variations like that's what I was doing you know right. kind of coats coat of method you know and um, you know and I still after like you know, close to an hour, I still couldn't um, get it. So I was like, I called, uh, I called Georgie and I was like, we're having a lesson and you're going to show me, you know, what am I doing wrong that I can't solve it, you know? But I mean, it, it was a pretty difficult uh, puzzle. So I, it might be hard without seeing the actual puzzle, yeah. but was there like some, 
general lesson that could be imparted from what Georgie saw that you didn't see in this puzzle? Well, the thing is, Georgie, uh, he actually knew this game. It's <laughs> of fair. course. Yeah. <laughs> it helped him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even then, it was difficult because he had to kind of reconstruct it, so he couldn't get it right away. Uh-huh. But, I mean, he had no, he knew the idea, and the okay. idea there was a key, you know? And do, do you remember, so it was Krasico and who else? Do you remember? Yeah, what the, the, he, he wasn't playing a famous guy. Okay. And... Um, I mean, I remember the position. I could put it. But okay. Spent so, so long with it. That's know? funny. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll uh, we'll send a link to it, and it can drive a few people crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a very good training exercise. I would say. I definitely felt like oh, it was time worth spent because you know, even if you don't solve a puzzle, just like the process, going through that process, like you're okay, you're calculating all these variations, and you're trying to be methodical and trying to visualize. You're listing your candidate moves. Like I think just the process is already, um, you know, very useful you okay. know, for training yeah so i i don't i didn't feel like uh very bad that i didn't get it right you know mm. you know yeah i felt like it's good that i was finally doing some training yeah so yeah i mean it's good that you're still hungry uh so irena we've only i've only got like one or two more topics that i want to get to one of them we we again mentioned before uh we recorded uh, our guests, I mean, our listeners rather love to hear stories. And of course, I'm sure you have a ton. And I mentioned to you that Casa Corley t- told a story of you playing Blitz with Magnus Carlsen and beating him no less uh, in New York. So that's one that you could tell. But uh, just any, I mean, brushes with legends, uh, memorable tournaments, memorable travels, stuff like that. Yeah, well, that is um, actually one of the highlights, I would say, of my chess playing life was that game with Magnus. And I can just like give you a little bit of the backdrop for how that happened. Um, He was headlining, you know, the Chess NYC, you know, Magnus Carlson Chess Week in New York. And I, um, which meant that he was like basically coming in for a couple of hours each afternoon to like, you know, interact with the kids a bit, various classrooms. And I was one of like the teachers there for the week. And so we knew that that day he was going to be visiting the classrooms and like playing blitz with the instructors. And, um, you know, we'd been waiting for a while and he wasn't there yet. And it was already kind of like the end of the day. And I thought, well, maybe I should leave, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, leave. I thought maybe, you know, well, I'll just be embarrassed in front of all my students anyway. I'll right. get crushed, you know. So but then I thought, well, how many times are you going to get a chance to play Magnus? Why don't you just stick around, mm-hmm. you know? And um, and then finally he came and we got to play. And, you know, most of the games that day he'd been playing with um, with odds, you know, like five to two or something. And for some reason, this game, it was just like five minute each, you know, and and I played a line um, in the Nimzo that he himself likes to play in the Nimzo. And okay, I messed up up the move order and um, he got like some initiative and I had to defend a little bit and kind of consolidated. And then finally, um, in some end game, he like blundered a piece to a double attack, you know? So then I won the piece and I had to convert. And um, he could have tried to flag me, you know, by the way, at the end, because I I don't know, maybe he had 20 seconds. But once he saw that like that, that was it, like the position was lost, you know, he resigned and First of all, I was shocked. Right. You know, you know, I mean, the thing is that for that 10 minutes, I guess, that we played, like, I, you know, there must have been people around us. You know, I know there were people who filmed us and stuff, but it's like, I didn't see any of them. Yeah. It was like, you know, in chess, how you got to concentrate. Yeah. But when you're playing someone like that, you know that, like, the tiniest mistake and they'll just, like, gobble you up. Right. So that was all I saw. It was just, like, the board. Yeah. You know, total focus. And so at the end, of course, I felt so happy. Yeah. It's like, wow. And the, and the things, and then one of the, or, now imagine him, right? He's like the big star. He was like already the number one player in the world. So like, 
you know, it's kind of embarrassing for him, right? To just come in and lose to like one of the regular teachers. Well, and I'll be, no, no, I'm sure it was embarrassing. And, um, and so one of the guys who was like organizing this, he was like, oh, do you want to play another game? Now, for most people, they would be like, yes, let's yeah. play because I'm going to win. Of course, I can win now 10 games in a row and like, you know, show, show my dominance. Uh, and he actually said, uh, no, it's okay. Wow. Yeah. And I, I thought that was very nice of him. Yeah. Because he just like let me enjoy my moment because I mean, there was very little chance that I would replicate this, especially after this game where I just like gave everything, you know, right. and he let me have that, you know, happiness and just leave it like that. And like even kind of had to suppress, I guess, his feelings of like, let's get the revenge and right. turn things back to how they're supposed to be. I thought that showed him in a very um, nice way. Yeah, that's that's an interesting, I mean, yeah. it's a good wrinkle on the story. Right, because it's not like, not everyone, I mean, we don't always see that side of him. I and mean, we know that he's like very competitive, doesn't like to lose, right? We see a lot of funny interviews yeah. <laughs> of him, right? We see that side, but actually he, um, he, can, he can also kind of, show a different side of himself. And uh, I guess, you know, it's always hard for great players to um, control, you know, their desire to win, yeah. you know, and, and avenge themselves. But, you know, he, he did that. Wow, that that's pretty cool. And you also mentioned that you played uh, Hu Yifan before she was world champion, yeah. well before. So <laughs> could you tell us that story? Yeah, I played Hu Yifan when she was like 11 years old, completely unknown player in China. And I was playing some, some some rapid tournaments there, and they they had her there. And um, you know, I played her, and I won this game with black. But I could feel like how this girl just played the game, like with you know, she just didn't play like a little child. You know, mm -hmm. you could just absolutely see the talent. And I, just a year later, she was already making a name for herself uh, in like in international chess. Like she played for China in the Olympiad. Um, she like knocked out a bunch of players in the women's world championship. So just a short time later, she was already very well known. But when I played her, she was like 11 years old, but you know, a very, uh, very clear talent. Okay. And, and obviously went on to achieve great things. And speaking of leaving chess, she's at least temporarily, uh, what's she going to Oxford? Yeah, somewhere um, in yeah. England, yeah, going to yeah. be doing some studying. I mean, of course, you know, the interactions that we had with Gary Casper were always, um, you know, treats. <laughs> you know, I was uh, one of, um, I was lucky that, you know, we had these training sessions with him leading up to the 2004 Olympiad, you know, where we um, had Susan Polger play board one. And that was an interesting time mm -hmm. in my chess life, you know, when we were preparing for that Olympiad and we had these training sessions with Gary. Um, and I recently saw him like um, <clears throat> a couple of years ago at the uh, Casper Chess Foundation, like New York State, New York City uh, Scholastic Championship. And so when I saw him, he asked me, so who do you think is going to win the candidates? Hmm. This was two years ago. Uh -huh. And I was like, wow, interesting that he's asking me, like, what could my opinion right. you know, possibly matter? So, but, you know, so I, I um, you know, I had no idea. So I asked him what he thought. And he, he actually listed, you know, Karyakin as one of his picks. Huh. And, and I was, you know, surprised at the time because I was like, well, Karyakin, it's not like he like won tons of tournaments. I mean, okay, he's solid, but that's exactly why he picked him. Right. You know, that, that's the candidates tournaments in Moscow that Karyakin wound up winning. And he was on a uh, Kasparov's radar. Huh. Interesting. So, he, so yeah, he had a, a good idea of who, who was capable of winning such an event. Yeah. It's interesting to hear what, what people like that, like the, the factors that they highlight when they handicap the tournament. Right. Exactly. Like, you know, for one of the players there, I mean, cause you know, the things like they're all the same level pretty right. much. Right. And one of the players there, he's like, he's got no chance. 
Mm. <laughs> you know, it was very clear. Like he thought, you know, and he might, and he was one of the players who, you know, Karyakin is not the highest rated. So this player, I think, was higher rated than Karyakin. Right. You know, and but but Gary thought, you know, Karyakin was definitely one of the contenders. And interesting. So Irene, I've been asking people this every week, but I can't not ask you about the World Championship. Uh, so what are, what are your thoughts? Uh, like, how do you assess uh, Fabiano's chances against Magnus? Well, yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's going to be a really good match. I mean, it's like number one and number two players in the world. I mean, it's always good when they're that close. Um, you know, Fabiano is bringing um, some, I think, good things to this match. I mean, he um, seems to be very resilient. Also, a lot of energy, a lot of like, I mean, just the fact that he withstood three tournaments like that in a row. You know, he won the uh, candidates, then won in Berlin then played in the U.S. Championship. And although he didn't win, it was like, really, he should have won. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he played well Unless enough to win. Was, Yeah, exactly. I mean, if Sam hadn't had the kind of amazing event he had, I mean, he Caruana would have won that one too. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, you just think about it with like no rest, playing something like the candidates, which is so draining. I mean, I think that really says a lot about where he is, right? It's um kind of almost like a machine, machine-like professionalism. Yeah. You know, so I think, um, you know, he's going to you know, make it very close, you know, and probably Magnus will have to prepare for it seriously. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. So basically you're saying Magnus, small favorite, <laughs> reading between the lines. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Um, now, you, well, yeah, it's hard for me to put anyone above Magnus. Right. right, right. I mean, if you just look at like, you know, the games and like the tournaments over the last years, it's hard to really say, oh, someone's a favorite over Magnus, you know. Um so, I mean, I think Magnus has been, you know, like every time he's in a playoff, he wins. You know, he's won so many tournaments coming from behind. Mm -hmm. He's got so much will to win, so much confidence in himself, so much like so much universe, universalism in his play. Um, you know, so it's hard to put someone as a favorite over him. But if I, you know, if I had to name the next player who, I mean, next best player who could like challenge him and and possibly beat him i mean yeah i mean it would be caruana yeah and what do you make of like a leap like that like i mean sam shanklin on a lower scale seems like he's just made this big leap in his ability and fabiano i mean to be sitting in the top 10 for all these years but then just like have these three just like you mentioned staggering results like how much of that is psychological versus how much of that is uh like quantifiably better at chess what do you think um, well, I mean, I think Sam, um, it must just be like the hard work is finally paying off. Right. You know, I mean, I think he's been working at it for a long time. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing that's, uh, you know, he was, let's say, you know, a very strong grandmaster, but it's very hard to differentiate yourself and amongst like all these great players in the world. And, but he stuck with it, you yeah. know, and I guess he's been doing things to improve. I don't know, Sam, um, you know, that well, but from what I know, I mean, he's been doing training sessions all around with different players and working with Jacob Agard. Yeah. So I think, you know, he's probably in his own, you know, one thing that he said that struck me, he just said something like during the U.S. championship is that he doesn't think that, you know, you should just try to draw the 2800s right, and try to yeah. beat the other guys, yeah. you know, that he got to try to win against everybody. Right. So I thought um, that's, great approach mm -hmm. i mean because that shows like first of all belief in yourself right mm -hmm. that's so key is to believe that you can do it yeah you know? and i think um because he had that you know he allowed himself to have the opportunity to just like do have a phenomenal result yeah yeah and it's good to see that 
leaps like that are possible. Definitely. I mean, yeah, because it's not every day that someone who's like, you know, 2650, 2670 can have that breakout result, you know? So I guess if you work hard enough, you know, yeah. and, and you believe in yourself, yeah, it's then, possible. Then maybe one day you'll have an amazing result. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> cool. Well, on that note, Irina, Irina, I think I'm out of questions. Do you have a question or you could come up and use the mic if you do. Thank you. For a new player that's struggling and losing early, what would you tell them now, or would you like your coach to tell you, given your experience? Um, well, I think the main thing is to, to someone who's new to the game is that you just got to explain that losing is a part of learning, you know, so they got to expect to lose quite a lot before they, um, you know, start winning more, you know, so just explain that, okay, like try to focus on what they need to learn from each game, what, what were the mistakes, how to fix them, and not so much on the result, you know, because the results will come when you've picked up all of those things. Yeah, well, that's the easy thing to say, but you just have to repeat it and repeat it, you like your conversation with Georgie. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but but yeah, eventually, chess players, if they if they stick around, they have no choice but to at least partially internalize uh, that lesson. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot, Irina. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Ben. The new Perpetual Chess theme music is courtesy of Geert Vandervelt. Special shout out to him. I also want to thank everyone who supports the podcast. That includes people who tell their friends about it, people who write positive reviews on Apple Podcasts, and most of all, those who have donated to support the show. I spend about five hours a week on each episode, and even though I love doing it, it can be hard to find the time. Without the support of my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Chess partners, the show would not be possible. They are... Adam Ralph, Adam Vrancouge, Adrian Gutierrez, Andres Crisdewa. I hope I did okay there, Andres, on your name. Alex Pejas, Chris Wainscott, Chad Hilton, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Chris Flanagan, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer, Gary Andrews, Greg Shahadi, James Bonastia, Jason Dunbar, Jennifer Valens, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, Jen Shahadi, Jen Scream, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Johnny McMenamin, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Lorraine Dore, Matthew Passi, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Tempo, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Lazorchak, Robert Steiner, Tatyav Abrahamian, Thomas Sonix, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotello, Victor Vrenkul, Zhao Cheng, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, everyone. I'll be back next week with another great... Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.